2: It's said that Pinoy's have the sweetest tooth of all. If this is true, why did it turn out this way? Let's try and figure it all out in this episode of Super Random. Welcome to the super sweet episode of Super Random. An Inquirer podcast powered by Puma Podcast, where we discuss and deconstruct everything Pinoy pop culture that you've either forgotten or were too embarrassed to admit you liked. I'm your super obsessive host, Ruel Estivera, and today we will explore why Filipinos love sweets so much. What are the unforgettable candies and chocolates of our childhood? Where did they come from? Where did they go? And what other sweet things do we like? Everybody likes sweets. That's what childhood, dentists, and desserts are for. But Filipinos have a particular reputation for liking their food sweet, whether deserved or not. After all, some people put peanut butter in their kare-kare. And of course, our spaghetti must drown in sweet tomato sauce. We will get back to the spaghetti later. But before we get into the vast array of sweets Filipino kids can consume, the question must be asked, do Filipinos have a particularly sweet palate? We invited someone today to answer this question.
1: Hello, I'm Felice Prudente, Santa Maria, known as a Philippine food historian. So is it true that Filipinos have a penchant for sweet things more
2: than other people?
1: I have no evidence for that. I would hate to generalize. In fact, our food has been characterized as salty and sour from the 16th century. It has never been characterized as sweet.
2: So what sweets did Filipinos eat prior to the
1: Spanish arriving? Number one, the juice of sugarcane. and dated back to the 1200s during the Chinese traders when they were coming here. And the idea was to peel the sugar cane, bite into the sugar cane and suck in the juice. That was as far as we got. Then of course, there was a variety of native fruits. And some of the names of the fruits, you know, we don't have them anymore. And then during the Spanish period, we learned how to uh, to make sugar, sugar cakes. And so those sugar cakes sometimes had the addition of peanuts, sometimes they had the addition of coconut. And so we have the panocha.
2: Felice explains that sugar suddenly became more accessible and became part of the diet. Filipinos learned to love sweets. In fact, by the 1930s, the country was spending a considerable amount of foreign currency importing biscuits and cookies and American-style instant chocolate to meet the local demand. It was then that the leaders of the Philippine Commonwealth decided to start making
1: the same items locally. Why do this? One, because the Philippine Republic was going to be on its own within 10 years. How was it going to generate the foreign currency that it needed for things like medicines, hospital equipment bringing in the textbooks that at the time weren't always being published in the Philippines. Was, they started saying, we need to know where to spend our foreign currency. And if we can instead make the candies and the biscuits and the chocolate locally, then that already is a big help to the incoming government.
2: And this is how Filipino companies began to manufacture brands specific to the Philippines. That's Felisa's take. Let's get another view.
0: Hi, I'm Margo Salcedo. I am a food writer, food columnist of the Philippine Daily Inquirer. I think definitely we have a sweet tooth because most Filipinos grew up with kakanin. Maybe depends also on the region— but us in Bulacan, my grandparents preferred hot chocolate over coffee. So in Saints Co, <laughs> there was a vendor right outside the school. The Sari Sari store that would sell different candies. The
2: Sari Sari store is ground zero for sweets as far as Pinoy kids are concerned, especially those located right outside schools.
1: The Sari Sari store? Allowed clients, customers, to buy just a little. They could buy what they could afford. And also, if they didn't have a refrigerator yet, they could buy only what they needed.
2: It is from these Sari Sari stores that the legendary and nostalgic sweet brands were discovered. Some of which are still here, either in their original form or in a different iteration, are gone forever. All these small candies that can be seen sold on sidewalks by ambulant vendors and bought by drivers or pedestrians. Just something sweet to put in their mouths while walking or driving. Where did this habit come from, Felice?
1: Let's not forget that once upon a time, chewing betel nut was very popular. And the only reason that betel nut sort of fell by the wayside is when health and sanitation became an issue. And so between the spitting out of the used betel nut and all of that, I mean, it just, it just uh, disappeared. There is an entire
2: category of hard mint candies available at the time as well. Perhaps the most ubiquitous mint candy at the time was the stork's menthol candy which indeed was originally manufactured by its German parent company. We saw it in its distinctive green wrapping with the smiling, bespectacled Dr. Stork looking back at us. Stork, as everybody called it, gained a secondary life as a kind of small change. Jeepney drivers who would run out of small change like 10 centavos at the start and later 25 centavos gave you a Stork instead. Some Sari Sari stores would do this as well, a kind of small-scale barter. Stork went through a name change and is today packaged differently as Star with the double R. And what makes these candies special? They were small enough to be concealed in class uniforms and consumed in the classroom when the teacher wasn't looking. And it left no evidence, unlike gum. This led to the continued proliferation of very specific sweets.
0: In high school, we would always have in our uh, drooping Saints Co. pocket orange sweets. That was a joke to us, because it's not sweets, but sweets.
2: There is also the Chinese product Hawflakes. It's usually packaged in stacks and gets its flavor from the Chinese Hawberry or Hawthorn. Shaped as thin small discs, they are convenient in the classroom and a bit of blasphemous fun.
0: You would pretend you're preparing for your first communion, and then you would say that... I mean, it's sacrilegious, I think, but you would pretend to, like, kind of be a priest. I went to an all-girls school, but we still did that. So one of us would play the priest, and
2: then I... <laughs> I was stunned to find out that the Hall Flakes at the Japanese specialty sweet shop chain, Aji Ichiban were actually the same dimensions as the full-size host consecrated by the priest during Mass. But perhaps the sweetest sweet the Filipinos enjoy the most is chocolate, adding sugar and shape to the chocolate our predecessors enjoyed. There is a virtual supermarket aisle of chocolates we enjoy up to this day, Goya. The Chewy Lala Curly Tops and Flat Tops.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I love flat tops and, and curly tops, yeah. Please
2: note that these are two completely different products, even if they now look identical. When Rikoa switched to its new packaging, Curly Tops had to lose its curl. The two greatest Pinoy chocolate products share the fact that they dominated the market with their distinctive taste and quality, but diverge in that one is lost, perhaps forever, and one thrives more than ever. When it comes to lost nostalgic candy, nothing tops the list other than surges. Surges Products Incorporated was founded in 1954 by businessman Anton Gokilay, naming the company after his son Sergio, with the skinny but smooth chocolate bar as its signature product. The Sergio's bar, with its distinctive twisting lettering on front, was the dominant bar for decades. The Asian financial crisis hit the company hard, and by two thousand and one, Surge's Products Incorporated was bankrupt. Sergio Gokilai died, and despite rumors that it would be brought back, Sergio's may be lost to future generations of chocolate lovers.
0: I remember that yung binabalatan mo it's wrapped in foil. Serge was our chocolate. I also remember, of course, Chocnut. We always had Chocnut.
2: Chocnut, on the other hand has endured and thrived, even entering popular consciousness and Netflix. To be precise, it's spelled Chalk Period Nut. Chalk Nut has a distinctively crumbly texture and includes coconut milk and peanuts among its ingredients. It is manufactured only in the Philippines but sold around the world, a veritable national treasure. It was only originally manufactured in Malabon by a company called Unisman, or New Unity Suites Manufacturing Corporation, but now by Annie's Suites Manufacturing and Packaging Corporation in Cavite. Here's an interesting detail as pointed out by a 2020 Esquire Philippines article. Hani is one of the many chocolates which are considered chocolate wannabes, and truth be told, probably the first choice for buyers when there's no actual chocolate available. Well, it turned out Annie's bought Unisman in 2013 and Annie's makes honey. So ever since then, both chocolate and honey are made by the same company but are absolutely still different products. Chocnut crumbles more easily, while honey is chewier and sweeter. But moving on from chocolates, who can forget the Mamang Sorbetero with his cart and his bell and his distinctive confection called Dirty Ice Cream.
0: The texture feels lighter versus, say, a gelato. That is more heavily bodied versus dirty ice cream sorbetes, ng mamang sorbetero, and ice cream I feel is creamier than our dirty ice cream. There was also a dirty ice cream vendor in the canteen that we would visit every day. So tatloing flavors nya: merong ubé, cheese, and chocolate. It's uh, memory lane.
2: Felice does not like the term dirty ice cream. That's
0: the factories
1: what? that make that, especially nowadays, they have certain standards that they must meet in order to sell ice cream. They can't be unsanitary or they're going to lose their license. I can't tell you definitely where the phrase dirty ice cream came from but I know it was popularized in the, uh, maybe in the 80s. You, know, you have to understand that cows were not native here, but the, the idea of milk as important to the Filipino meal, that's really an American era. Somehow the nutritionists then, they just believed that the milk was a good way to get protein and fat and all the good minerals and vitamins to children. One way to convince children to take their milk was to put it in ice cream. So in public schools, they would start a feeding program all the time, for five days a week in some of the public schools in Metro Manila, they served ice cream. One, because the children liked it, and secondly, they got their milk. And in comparison, the public school made ice cream, was clean, whereas the ice cream that the kids would buy outside the school, no one was sure about the sanitation of, of the factory that made the ice cream. So, this is where suddenly you, you have a okay, this is safe and this is not safe. Happy birthday
2: to you. Which brings us to one of the greatest food mysteries as far as I am concerned. When did spaghetti in the Philippines become so sweet? Felice says it did not start out that way.
1: The spaghetti arrived here sometime during the American era. Before that, there was no spaghetti. And the kind of spaghetti that uh, we seemed to be eating during this American period was the kind that had meat in it. But if you track spaghetti through Philippine recipes, which is what I have done, you find that there is not the addition of even a little teaspoon of sugar in Philippine spaghetti in the 50s and the 60s, even in the early 70s. And when I was growing up, so I'm talking about the 50s and 60s, we served spaghetti during children's parties, but the goal was not to uh, give them a saucy, you
0: know, Mm -hmm. like
1: all tomato sauce, casserole or uh, yeah, or spaghetti, the idea was to give them lots of meat. We had ground pork, ground beef, and then we had um, meatballs as well. Now, I, I think what, what happened is, you see here, a, a strange evolution. Firstly, hot dog. Hot dogs weren't really that available in the 60s, but then now you have hot dog. And hot dogs have been promoted as food for children for, what, maybe 20 years already. And then there are recipes, I remember one, that was a little strange, where in the 60s, people who had access to PX goods. PX
2: goods, by the way, are imported goods.
1: They would take cheese Whiz and a bottle of ketchup and mix them together. The banana ketchup which has always been a little bit sweet, mixing in with the cheese Whiz, which is also slightly salty sweet. Felice notes that in 1979, Jollibee launched
2: its special spaghetti that used hot dogs and a sweet sauce. That was such a hit. McDonald's had to do similarly for its children's party meals, if I'm not mistaken. Felice couldn't find a date for when Del Monte launched its sweet spaghetti sauce. UFC has a sweet Filipino-style spaghetti sauce. She has never tried it, so she doesn't know if it tastes like UFC banana ketchup, but she thinks because the sweet banana ketchup was popular, it somehow preconditioned people to Jollibee spaghetti. Mafran, of course, was the earliest banana ketchup many of us knew. But Margot here... Doesn't like sweet spaghetti.
0: I mean, I I get it, but I don't like it. You know what else I don't like is how throughout the years we've replaced some chorizo or the I guess the old school um, hams that we would get from Spain with the ham that we have here. It's parang everyday everyday ham. But I mean, I guess it's really a a matter of economics. You know, it's what you have on hand. I guess like throughout the years. Uh, whereas you would you know you would have like tomatoes na, made from scratch or whatever before then we got just got used to the the sauce that we would have in cans so even in terms of for example like fiesta food i remember that the memory of my grandparents of the chicken galantina that we would have uh, for Christmas became very different from the chicken galantina that we would have, like for my generation, because of what was available. So they would talk about, um, parang the chorizo in a bottle that na pa pado yon, the marating na may may specific brand silam bina But now we just have the um, Vienna sausage. <laughs> you have to make do with that. So wala, it's just that that's what's that's what's available but interestingly enough yung spa natin ha- is, is starting to have an identity of its own not a lot of people agree but you know what fight lam! <laughs> yun yun eh
2: <laughs> you heard it right Margot calls it spa and evolution and economy has led us to this point when what is ostensibly universally known as a umami and sour dish has become unmistakably Pinoy-level sweet. But as Felice said, we are not a nation historically known as having a sweet tooth. This may all in fact be a big misconception. Our distinctively sweet spaghetti is the perfect segue to our next question. Are we then a people who actually prefer the salty to the sweet? That's it for this third episode of the second season of Super Random, an Inquirer podcast powered by Puma Podcast. This episode was produced by Macy Hoven and edited by Nico Balante. We would like to thank Felice Prudente Santa Maria and Margot Salcedo for joining us on the show today. If you like this episode, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite podcasts. I'm Ruel S. De Vera. If there's the sweet, there's also the salty. Why do Pinoy's like to snack so much? And where did our favorite chitcheria come from? Find out in the next episode of Super Random. Till then, stay super.